Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. Very good. Oh, before we start, uh, I thought we thought it'd be nice to do the ceremony uh, just uh, after the carols, um, which is the carols an option, by the way. But it ends off with plain chant, so it's all very nice and peaceful. And then, then all right, it means starting it just a quarter of an hour early. That's all. Yeah, instead of uh, I've got my thing. Oh, here we are. Instead of, um, there's a sitting at 14.30, which I've given a bit more time after Christmas lunch, you see. <laughs> things to say. And then at, um, I put here 16.15, but if we make it at 16.00, then that still means we can have the old Christmas cake. And uh, a special carrot cake, correct? Banana what, bread. Uh, banana bread. With peanut butter. With peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> Poppy seeds. Very good. Okay. So uh, here we go. Uh, I sometimes wonder if the practice is dulling rather than expanding. Uh, my openness and appreciative joy. Right. I wonder if that practice is dulling rather than expanding. My, my openness and a priest of joy. All these errors we can make in practice in this regard, such as creating an unskillful kind of detachment. Um, I think it's just really being clear as to what the different practices are so that you yourself can balance your practice. Vipassana um, has two functions. The first one is to purify the heart, and the second one is to have insight. So the purification of the heart just happens naturally as you sit, and all the stuff that um, you know we've suppressed or repressed, or, or we're working with in daily life, all that just comes up. So you can't. It's the turbulence comes up first. It's as simple as that. Uh, the lower depths of the ocean are nice and calm, you see. But what we're on is just this horrible boat that keeps bobbing up and down on the, on the storms of life. So it is a case of uh, recognising that uh, a lot of our practices is allowing the heart to manifest its problems and uh, recognise that so long as it doesn't slip into thought patterns, especially purposefully, they are actually dying out. You know, and in time they do, they do give up. And the other thing to recognise or remember is that when you have, say, anger come up, uh, it has an object, you're angry about something, but that's not the cause of it, remember. The cause is an internal decision to respond or react to a situation with anger. So therefore, the anger we have is, is really an, uh, a sort of an internal attitude. I often use the word like, like a balloon of anger, and we let little bits of it out whenever, we, whenever something irritates so it's not actually attached to the object. Right? 
we can make it attached to the object. You know, if you live in a house where you get this thumpy music come through, I've just been talking to my nephew, he's, he's uh, studying um, music. So when you, get, <laughs> when you get this thumpy music come through the wall, it's us that decides it's annoying. And the more we decide that, the more annoying the music is. You see, right? So when we sit in meditation, although, so we say, we'll talk about just anger, but any negative state, when it attaches to something, see, the idea is to come off the attachment that it's holding on to and go into the actual feel of it and to stay with the burn, whatever it is, right? And that way it's, 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 uh, it's just um, exhausting its energy. It's not going anywhere, it's just coming out through the body as feeling. See? So that, that part of it is the purification of Pasna. And the, the really joyous thing about that is that although it is difficult, we don't have to do anything apart from attend. See? And if you think of the word attend to mean more in the sense of as a nurse might attend to a patient. Right? So that's when, remember, you can... Um, did I send off that affectionate uh, awareness in one of my e-reminders? Did I do that? Affectionate awareness? No, okay. Uh, I've just written a little piece to send off. Uh, that's when you would bring a certain affection towards what it is that you are having to bear up with. Mm-hmm. And you're not trying to get rid of it with affection. You're not trying to uh, change it with affection. You're just trying to regard it with affection. That's all. To regard it with affection. An affectionate regard. And what this does is, it undermines the reaction of uh, fear and um, irritation towards what it is that you're experiencing. Yeah. So you get something come up like, say, anger... And it comes up so much you're afraid of it and you pull off it, see? But when you actually approach the lion, uh, uh, what was that? I saw that film, oh dear, that sort of a cartoon thing. It, it, won, it won the big prize, that tiger, life. life of pie, see? So <laughs> the way he struggles with his, with his tiger. Um, it's funny that it should disappear once he landed, but mm. we won't talk about that. So, <laughs> so if you get that idea clear in your mind as to the mechanics, as to just the way the heart um, manifests its turbulence, see, it's we that put words on it, it's we that call it anger, fear and all that, which then moves it into an area of um, conceptual understanding about what, our relationship to things. But actually in the body it's just feeling. And when it comes out as just feeling, it's healing. That's poetry. So, so that's the first part, right? To be very clear about it. The other part is insight. And the insights are always to do with these three avenues of investigation. So when we say investigation, you can actually say to yourself, well, in this sitting, I'm going to try and be much more aware of how things come to an end, the impermanence of things. Or you can say, this this sitting, I'm going to make a special effort just to see how the desire arises and how it attaches. Or you can say, just in this period, I'm just going to find that observation post within myself where I feel that everything is happening outside me as an object. So these are your three uh, avenues of investigation which liberate the knowing, liberate the Buddha within. Remember, it's, it's the way we're looking which is the delusion. 
The delusion doesn't arise, doesn't arise in the mind itself. Uh, the delusion isn't in the mind itself as thought patterns and emotions and outside in ordinary life as our relationship. Those are the manifestation of delusion. They are manifesting that we're looking at a situation in a wrong in a wrong way. See? So that's your vipassana. Okay. Now uh, you'll note that in vipassana the seven factors of enlightenment do not include love, compassion, sympathetic joy. <laughs> See? And there's a purpose to that, right? Because we don't want mental states, right? Because they're only mental states. They're not they're not permanent. They arise and pass away and go. We don't want mental states to colour the way we're looking. We need this very clear equanimous position in order to, to, to do the investigation, which which would be say, <coughs> quite um, uh, uh, not strange to a scientist. I mean, that's what they're supposed to be doing. Eh? They're supposed to be, you're not supposed to be getting involved emotionally in anything that you're doing. So, uh, uh, then we recognise, okay, so how do you get to the pure, how do you get to love, compassion and sympathetic joy? So remember that the purification that's going on in the meditation is releasing energy. The energy is not lost, right? And in Zen they would say, with wisdom, compassion arises naturally. You don't have to work at it. But generally speaking, in, in, the, in Buddhist practice, you do have these practices, practice of metta, sympathetic joy, and compassion, which are extending or reusing that energy which has now been released from its hold in anger and fear and all that. And you're using it to develop these better qualities. And... The understanding is that there's no, there's no limit to how much of this energy you can actually create. So, uh, either way, I mean, we call the illimitables love, compassion, joy, but it's illimitable into how much fear and, and, and anger and, and horror <laughs> we, can, we can develop. See? So you've got to balance the practice with metta. That's the thing. And you've got to balance the practice with sympathetic joy. Uh, it's taken me a long time to actually bring that into the routine of a Vipassana meditation uh, retreat. It was only last year that I finally got round to including sympathetic joy late in the evening. So that we begin in the morning with the practice of compassion where we bring to mind people who are sick and so on and so forth. And then in the evening we develop metta and then sympathetic joy. See? So that... There is this transformation going on. See, so, in other words, uh, the vipassana isn't everything. The vipassana is a specific technique to deal with specific questions. See? And again, that mental state of mindfulness that we are developing in vipassana, which is, uh, should we say, uh, then coloured with love, compassion, with an attitude, right? is something we're supposed to take into daily life. So that there's a continuity of this uh, mindful awareness, mindfulness and awareness. Yeah. So that's um, that's it. And uh, how do we get see this un this unskillful kind of detachment? So the unskillful kind of detachment is when equanimity falls into its near enemies. It's called its subtle enemy of indifference. Um, I, I've told this tale a hundred times, but maybe one of you haven't heard it, which gives me an excuse to say it all over again. 
Have you heard about my <laughs> my uh, encounter with uh, a monk and a mouse and a cat? Nah, no, right, good, there you go, I can tell my tale again. So there's this, <laughs> for fear of boring everybody else. So I went to visit this monk, and we just, I was in the monastery, so I had a chat with him, and there was a cat playing around with a mouse. So I said to him, uh, did, did, you, did you stop that? Because the cat was fat, it wasn't, it wasn't a skinny, often you get animals not being kept, kept very well, but this fat, this cat was a fat cat. And I, I said, did you stop? He said, no, he said, it's cat karma, mouse karma, right? So he saw the whole thing happening. He was sat there and he saw the cat catch the mouse and then kill it and then just play around with it. He wasn't eating it, yeah? And then not so long after that, I was in another monastery and there were four or five of us sitting on a bench and it was the uh, uh, cool part of the afternoon chatting and uh, a, a cat suddenly jumped out and jumped on this bird, right? And one of the monks, as quick as lightning, got up and gave this cat one hell of a kick and then picked up the bird and then realising it was dead, held it up and very beautifully chanted, Anichavata Sankara, all compounded things arise and pass away. So, of course, his idea of, uh, of what he should do when he sees something which is <coughs> suffering is completely different from his other fellow, you see. So there, for me, that was such a stark contrast that has always remained in my mind as a, as a distinction between those people who get into this quietism. I think that's what it might be called in the West. Uh, a sort of rejection of the world. Um, a, non, a non-involvement. And considering that to be equanimity. See? But of course, we have, it, we have, the, very, we have the Buddha himself as, as, as an exemplar. I mean, he, he didn't just sit under a tree. Once he was, you know, just sit there in the bliss of, of, his, of his liberation. You know, he's, he got up and walked. Um, I think it's about 300 miles from where he was, Bodh Gaya, all the way to Sarnath. You know, look, uh, re- seemingly looking out for his old companions. So he must have, they must have told him where they were going, or he must have heard where they were going, or it was a regular thing that every year they turned up at Sarnath at this particular time of year. Because the ascetics at that time would, would do their rounds, you know. And um, so, I mean, that's, that's a great example. I mean, he, you know, he spent his time um, really cleaning out, cleaning himself up, and then out he went. Okay. And uh, it's difficult, if you look at the history of, uh, of spiritual leaders, uh, it's always the same, really. Now, at the moment, uh, you know, myself and Mike were doing this St. Francis thing. So St. Francis, you see, one of his great big moments of, um, of um, what would you call it, um, metanoia, that's the word, his conversion, was when he hugged a leper, which in those days was horrific. I mean, he just didn't do that. He kept him well away, you see. But somehow it reminds you of the story of uh, Milarepa. You know, what was it? Can somebody remind me of that? Milarepa and he... Remember that? Um, he hugged a mangy dog or something and it turned into a bodhisattva. Do you remember that story? There you see. So, <laughs> so it's always this, um, this uh, you can't separate the world, the world we're actually living in, from uh, the, the meditation itself, the inner world. You can't separate the inner from the outer world. You can't do that. Or if you do, then you end up in the error. Of, uh, of creating this little island where there's just you being happy and everybody else's. Well, it's their problem, it's their karma. Okay? 
questions. I don't know whether anybody wants to make a, a comment on that or add to it or is, is the questioner happy with the answer? Or is it Brett? <laughs> is any anything arising? Any matters arising? Yeah. I was uh, <clears throat> this is this is relevant. I was gonna buy a friend of mine a book. Russell and Waterston's called A Thousand and One Ideas That You Must That Will Change Your Life, this sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> so I read um, <clears throat> a few things that I know a little bit about just to test it, you know, and the one in Buddhism was interesting because the it defined, um, and I'd be interested to know what you think about this, it defined Nibbana as a kind of blissful oblivion. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. Burn the book. I say, burn the book. It really is awful. I, I, you know, I don't know. It's something like self-centrism. Well, I'm, I'm now just reading a book by a, um, interestingly enough, by a Burmese. Um, it's the Burmese, really, through the Abhidhamma, who've um, tended to describe Nibbana as a sort of oblivion. And the early Christian missionaries didn't do much because they just saw it as annihilation, as a clever... Just a, a very subtle form of annihilation. I don't know how you can make annihilation subtle. <laughs> you're either here, or you're not. <laughs> um, no, it's 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 quite clear in the scriptures that it's it is. Um, there are two states. There's the one in which the Buddha, the Buddha nature, for want of a better word, is within itself, and that is described as. Uh, boundaryless and full of light. It's a complete awakenedness, but it is a totally enclosed thing. It's like, for instance, you were inside a light bulb without the glass. That's the sort of thing. But when that comes into the phenomenal world, which is through the psychophysical organism, then of course it remain it, it it mirrors back to itself through that organism. Um, it's its view or its way of being with life. And therefore, the Buddha says, for instance, one person asks him, says, uh, it's a regular quote, <coughs> uh, this training is very hard. <coughs> he says, yeah, it's very hard, but then you reach Nibbana. So he says, Nibbana, so what? He says, well, when you get there, you are contented and with it happy. And that's the direct translation, Tutti Sukkawahati. Contented, that's one of the big signs of somebody. Contentment just means this is the way it is. Right? Whether it's painful or unpainful, one is at peace with it, one is at one with it, you might say. So yes, you must uh, give them that book, but write something in there. That's, this is a lie. <laughs> as to the greater understanding as to what happens to somebody who's fully liberated when they are reborn, then Theravada tends to just uh, say, well, it's, it's Nibbana. But the Mahayana um, point out that, um, that that conscious, that that nature can re-manifest in the world in, its, in, its, uh, in a beautiful form. Um, so uh, there's a bit of, you know, one thing that the book actually points to in this particular book I'm reading is that uh, there's no overall clear definition of Nibbana which would bring all the different sects together. They've all got their own little nuance on what Nibbana is.
but uh, in Theravada <coughs> it's described both in a negative form. So for instance, it wouldn't be right, or it would be difficult to say that Nibbana is happiness. Because as soon as you say happiness, some people, you have an idea of what happiness is. And it's beyond ideation. It's not an emotion, there's no emotions in Nibbana. It's not a thought, there's no thinking. There's not a feeling, there's no sensations. So as soon as you say happiness, you're stuck. So the Buddha prefers the negative, it's adukha, there's no suffering. Which sounds really dry. And when he talks about the actual experience in itself, then he talks about this uh, consciousness which is boundaryless. So boundaries are only created by phenomena, they're boundaryless. Uh, without, um, uh, so without boundary, not touched by any of the senses. So there's nothing phenomenal at all in there. There's nothing that arises and passes away. Right? There's nothing that has any substance in our sense of the word. And in all directions full of light. Is that what um, they people refer to as emptiness? Well, emptiness, in our scriptures, there are two words, anatta and sunya, sunya and anatta, sunyata. And in, uh, the Buddha is, uh, in our scriptures, he remains very, very centred on the individual, on you as a person who's suffering, and how to get out of suffering. So there's no philosophy as such, there's no extension of that into any great um, philosophical concept, you might say. And the anatta draws you into yourself to ask, well, what is, it, what is in me that is unchanging? Right? What is it in me that, that is not suffering? And is there something in me which I don't experience as a self, as something which is objective? Right. I, if I look at my hand, my hand becomes an object. It becomes my hand. Yeah. So, the word sunya simply means that. It's empty of all phenomena. Right. Now, later on in Buddhism, as it got more philosophical, this concept was extended to all things. Everything is sunyata. Everything is sunya. Everything is empty. Empty of uh, substance. It arises and passes away. It has no existence as such. Although, again, some schools say it exists at least for a moment. But that, I don't think that would be, in our scriptures, correct. It would be this constant swirl of energy, which never substantiates, never holds. It's only the mind, with its cognitive faculties, that can actually hold an image long enough for us to actually see it as, as something which, is, which has some sort of substance to it. I'm right in saying, yeah, I'm like that, that these synapses in the brain and all that, they're all subatomic. What's happening in the brain? It's the, the energy there, the way it passes and stuff, you know? It's electrical, electrical, isn't it? Yeah, and all that, isn't it? But it's not all to do with little subatomic particles, the brain itself. When it's when it it's communicating. But when it's but when it's there yeah. are molecules that are passed between the at the synapses, but they actually release electrical impulses and they're it's not, it's, there's their manifest has just changed. There are changes in, in electrolytes, so it's like sodium and potassium changes right. in, in, the, in the synapses. It happens very quickly. So it's at a molecular level. Ah, not. But having said that, I think that, that that's that's a very super. I think our understanding of the brain and of yes. the mind is so superficial. It's <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's the level right. at which we're at at the moment. Uh, okay. I'm sure there's more okay. to it. Okay. No, I, I read somewhere about subatomic. <laughs> No, well, I'm sure you're, yeah. no I, well, I can't even remember where I read it. Yeah. it might just so, be, I mean, the, the electron would be subatomic, wouldn't it? Yes. 
in the in the actual electric. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, why did I go into that? I must have had it. Well, you remember how Dr. Rotterdam was so keen on these, what are these little particles? Oh, cal- calapas. Calapas, yeah, that's right, yeah. That's why, yes. I always used to say, well, that's why we go like the calapas. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, in Abhidhamma, there are 17 physical moments in a mental moment. Oh, no, 17 mental moments in one physical moment. So when, for instance, a photon hits the back of the eye, right, uh, for that to be actually go to the first position of uh, a, a percept, a single percept of that one photon, takes 17 thought moments. And these thought moments build up and build up on each other until finally you, you see a flower. So these, uh, these little moments are called kalapas. <laughs> And these infinitesimal time slots. Uh, and what I'm insistent on saying these days is when you're very clearly in the position of the observer, of the feel, of the experience, when you're actually there and you, um, and that position is very clear to you that everything that you're experiencing is out there, outside the observer, right? <clears throat> when, you, when you come out of that position, you see, just ask yourself, what was inside the observer? Okay? And that, that, because the observer is, the feeling of self there, is a mirror image coming back into the knowing. Okay? So we're very close to it, that's why the Buddha says, you know, those who are aware in the presence of Nibbana. It's actually pointing in the right way. Looking back at it. You know, Could you say that again? Sorry about it. Mirror image. Well, uh, the example I usually use is of a mirror. So yeah. when you look in the mirror, it's your face you're looking at. Yeah. Right? But remember, it's the other way around. It's not actually how people see us. Mm-hmm. So in a way, when we get that feeling of the observer within ourselves, mm-hmm. there is a feeling of somebody watching, somebody feeling, right? Now that somebody is a, is the face looking back at us, right? But it isn't it isn't what's looking. Mm-hmm. Oh, isn't that kind of infinitely recursive? Because I mean, at the moment you you kind of objectify it, and then obviously it's outside of you. No, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> what I'm saying is just observe, be in that mm-hmm. position. Afterwards, reflect on. You see. What were the inner constituents of the knower? I think that is the biggest conundrum, isn't it? There's the whole not self. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can't even start to go. Well, uh, I have written an amazing essay, which I will, <laughs> which I will post on my reminder, which I hope makes things uh, just a little bit clearer. All the Buddha's saying is. If there is something in us which has the which has the quality of what we would recognise as a spirit, it doesn't change. It is alive. It is awake. Right? What what is it? Okay. So all he says is observe your experience at a physical level, at an emotional level, at a mental level, and ask yourself: 
Is that it? And invariably you come up with the answer. No, it's not it. Right. And then you begin to realise that there must be something that knows, that can see something changing. Which can't be changing in itself. Okay. At certain rates. So it's a case of stepping back, not knowing where you're heading for. See? And you're heading for a cliff. See? And when you drop off, that's it. <laughs> so you don't know you don't know what it is you're looking for. You you're simply investigating what it is you're not. So that's the usual thing, netty, netty, not this, not this. That, does that make a bit more sense? If you start looking at the observer, then you create another observer looking at the observer. It's, it's a trick of the mind. You can't do that, you see. It's just being in the position of the observer that one begins to realise that, for instance, there's pain in my knee and there's some body that knows it. Right? Okay, that's enough. Now, you can actually go for the feeling of the observer. That won't create another observer. You have to go into the feel of the observer. Mm. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> burn the book, by the way, <laughs> Have a public burning. That's, like, that's awful. It really is. It's just a film. Honestly, how they come up with these. Oh dear. In the past years, I felt that an increased awareness of sensations of fear and sadness of disgust has somehow reduced my engagement with life, reducing my willingness to undertake challenge. Not where I expect the press to take me. Well, it depends what the original challenge was, you see. Often when we suffer from fear, um, we'll create sorts of challenges, you might say, in order to prove that we're above fear. It sort of leads us to a sort of foolhardiness. Do you know what I mean? We create false challenges. Um, really motivated from, from, wrong, from a, a wrong attitude. Do you know what I mean? When all those attitudes begin to calm, then our challenges are more realistic. Okay? And if no challenges come to us, what are we complaining about? I mean, <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? You know, sometimes we, um, like for instance, a lot of people who get involved in the horror that's going on with climate change, um, on the surface of things, they are putting out this compassion for the world and, and, and spreading that gospel, the compassion for the world. This is the world we owe it to our children, all that sort of stuff. But underneath it, they themselves might be suffering from tremendous fear as, as to they them, you know, that they themselves will be caught up in, in the Holocaust. But they're not, they're not recognising that. It just stays there. And what it does is, uh, it fuels it. It comes out in this peculiar way of, of overplaying your cards. Going, you know, sort of... I mean, one of the things is, is frustration and anger, you see. Um, so yeah. There are things in my own practice that turns into um, concern for the self. 
to, to such an extent yeah. that it becomes a hindrance in itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's not self-meta. It just gets muddled. Mm. Into and, fear. And, and it's all fear, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to a jihadist or somebody like that, um, they would tell you that their motivations are perfectly wholesome and they would quote and all that stuff. And they would justify their anger, see? And then they justify their incredible cruelty to other human beings. You know, some of the reports are absolutely horrific. And it all comes from this underlying anger, which is based on a fear. So, um, uh, what's the name of that... Um, Writer, she's very good at the history of God. She wrote one on my hand. Karen Armstrong. Yeah, Karen Armstrong. Well, she did a study of fundamentalists in America, and what, what motivates them is fear. They they really fear that you know modern society undermining them. And I recently, if you see Google, it gives seasonal greetings, a seasonal festive greetings. It doesn't call it Christmas anymore. So I clicked on that, and there was an article in the Independent which said they'd done a survey in America where it's, the society split almost in half with those people who don't believe at all and those people who are, who are all shades of belief. But the, the underlying progress is that those um, people from the age of, I think, 16, 18 to 30, it moves up to about 60, 70% on belief. So if you're a fundamentalist and you, you're seeing all these young people not coming in, you know, to church and whatnot, and that fear then uh, really it's 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 turns, doesn't it? You attack the enemy. Yeah. I don't know where we're going, <laughs> but um, so I think if we feel. Um, if we look back at our lives and we think, well, normally I would, I would really go for this challenge, but now I'm not. That might be a progress, you know. That might be you, you'd have to sort of a person would have to reflect upon it to actually see the situation as clearly as they could, which were and, and ask and ask and ask oneself, what does that situation demand of me? See what I mean? Whether there is more wisdom in that. Yeah, that you're not being driven by uh, unconscious motives, unconscious motivation, you know. Which, I mean, we know all about that from Freud, you know. He's excellent. He really had quite an insight into all that. The pathology of everyday life. <laughs> so, yeah. I suppose a telltale point might be when something is asked of us uh, which is um, testing the and then we find ourselves able to rise to the challenge that might be whatever it might be you know, it could be anything couldn't it? it could be something out there it could be personal illness etc etc you just don't know yeah any, any comments uh, criticisms Um, as the <clears throat> as the drives fanned by attachment dissolve as the things that used to drive and motivate dissolve 
where does action come from? And how does one choose to do anything at all? Yeah, they have uh, three types of karma, which, remember, in, in Buddhist uh, terminology, just means action. A karma is an action. So you have this wholesome and unwholesome, and then what they call functional. Functional karma. Rather interesting. So, normally speaking, so long as we have a self, there's always somebody doing something which is unwholesome or wholesome. And so long as we have a self, what we're trying to do is move over to the wholesome side. So remember that, that the Buddha also has a psychology, an inbuilt understanding of our psychology, which is not, not to do so much with Nibbana as such, but to actually make us happy within ourselves by working with these emotional states and developing the opposites. So we're actually supposed to be getting happier in ourselves through the practice. Because <laughs> uh, you can't tell it on, a, on a, a direct line, it goes up and down, up and down, but generally over, say, a period of five, ten years, one might look back and think, well, I am generally more happy. Now, you've got to be careful here. It might not be happy in an emotional sense, but more in a meaningful sense. Like your life is more directed, etc. So it's a subtle thing. So um, <clears throat> there is that, you see. So as long as we have a self, you have to act, whether you, just as soon as you get up in the morning, you're acting. You know, right? There's always an intention in everything you do, so that's an act. So uh, we're trying to develop our wholesomeness and letting go of our unwholesomeness. Now when you're fully liberated and there's no self, the Buddha still gets up and acts. See? He still gets up and he, he feels hungry and he get, puts his robe on and he picks up his bowl and he goes off and, and, uh, and, and goes for an arms round. Or he teaches. Or, so he's always acting. Right? In fact, uh, occasionally he would go off by himself. Uh, he says for his own delight, his own relaxation, and as a, an example to others. But he seems to have led a, quite a very active life. I mean, you know, he was, he was on call, on tap. He was always walking everywhere. He spent many a time. Uh, we know where he spent his uh, rainy seasons. Uh, they tended to be between the two kingdoms of Magadha and uh, what's what the other one called? Anyway, the two main kingdoms there. So he was acting, but somehow they weren't wholesome or unwholesome. Okay? And all that saying is that there's no self, it's not self-serving. Even when we do something wholesome, there's a bit of self-service. But when there's no sense of serving this imaginary self, and you are, as it were, in a direct, spontaneous communication, you know, with, with the people and, 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 and nature around you, and the world around you, and you see yourself as simply part of the flow of energies, which are moving from one person to the other. And all you're doing through your understanding is helping the flow of goodness along. See what I mean? There's, no, there's nothing there which attaches and says, oh, this is, this is me or this is mine. Or I am. I am finishing it off with, you know, I'm a, I am teaching. I am this and that. There's just, just, just that. There's just that interconnection, a contingency, which happens spontaneously uh, to somebody who's liberated and for us what we do is we just create little barriers that's all we, and stop the flow of energy we draw it back into ourselves for me See? so it doesn't that's <coughs> the whole thing about um, 
taking on the form of a, of, a, of, a, of a human being is that it becomes a vehicle of expression whether it's negative or positive or in this sense neither negative nor positive see what I mean so it doesn't the process of liberation doesn't stop you from acting it just makes the acts more and more uh, in direct communication with the way things really are not being perverted by by self self regard yeah having said that it's not as though the Buddha didn't take care of his body I and mean, you know so brushing your teeth is not um, yeah, yeah. You're brushing your teeth you see so it's not the same meaning you're serving the self no just the body yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you're taking care of your teeth and considering they're the last lot we're going to have. <laughs> so it is. Um, yeah, that's about it really. Um, I'm just trying to think. Well, I was also thinking of wording it as something like, uh, you know, conventionally, day to day, we tend to think about meaning. And you say, oh, I'm getting meaning because I'm dedicating myself to X. That's right. Yeah. But... Uh, if that sense sense of meaning is dissolving, I think Adi Shanti says that meaning is just another thing that the ego looks for, which is a very you know, kind of <laughs> kind of a shocking shocking statement in a way. Um, um, uh, it depends if it depends. It's all to do with it's all to do who, who the meaning is for. So if it makes me feel bigger and better and uh, me feel stronger and more powerful, then it's obviously a meaning which is corrupting me. But if the meaning uh, of my life is for the benefit of others, flowing outwards, then it's taking. A, then I'm at the service. See, to be at, to to give oneself to a service, you must let go of yourself because you're at the demands of other people. So it's not that you forget your own needs but you're out there for other people. I mean, that's the whole point of seeing service as a way of completely getting rid of the self. In uh, Zen understanding, the best place to be is in the kitchen as a cook because there you have to uh, feed all these different monastics and be aware of their little peculiar diets and whatnot and make sure the food... Is, and it's always for them, for them, for them. You eat, but you're actually doing it for them. So there's that sense of service. And that completely undermines the ego, uh, I don't like using that word, the self, which is always thinking about itself. See, So, uh, you know, I mean, if I get, if somebody, say, wants an interview when I'm happily engaged in this book, you know, and I, and I say, oh, bloody hell, yeah. <laughs> then that's, I've lost my sense of service. See? My sense of service should be spontaneous. As soon as somebody asks, I'm out, because that's what I've said. I've said, I'm teaching. Now, it doesn't mean to say that when I go on a personal retreat that I have to respond to that, because then I'm looking after myself. But as soon as I feel I put myself out into the arena as a, as a, a Dharma teacher, then if any negativity comes up, when I'm being asked to respond, then that's, that's, that shows my sense of service is not yet purified. <laughs> 
Now, the peculiar thing is that the more you give yourself to others, or the more you give, to, the more you give yourself to others, um, not forgetting one's needs, as it were, right? Um, the more the sense of self disappears. And the more the sense of meaningfulness grows. I mean, that's your paradox. So your, the, our sense of meaningfulness, the measure of our meaningfulness is the measure of, of our commitment to something greater than ourselves. And it's interesting that the Buddha would say things like, who sees the Dharma sees me, who sees me sees the Dharma. So he had this, you know, this sort of tremendous respect for the Dharma, for the way things are. And he serviced it completely. So that he could actually make that connection, say, well, if you, who sees me sees the Dharma in action. See, and who sees uh, the Dharma also sees me. In other words, Buddha nature, how it ought to be. Mm. So I don't know, Adyashanti might have been thinking of it in that, in that sort of more egotistic, more... Or storytelling mode. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Mm. But Depends. what you just said about authorship really helped me because I had a very hard time when my book was published. And up to that point it was all about service. And then suddenly it became about me, <laughs> my name. Yeah. And it was devastating because I, you know, so many interviews are about me and my skills, and and it was just awful, awful. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't think yeah. <laughs> because anyway. But even that, but you've got to be careful because remember there are three conceits. Yeah, I am better than, which is of course the usual one to think of, but I'm worse than. See, that's a conceit. Uh, it's an inverted conceit, isn't it? An inverted pride. And the, and the, the, the subtle one is I am the same as. Because we group with people who are the same as us and other groups are either better or worse than us. Yeah. If, if when you were asked about your skills, you had in mind... Um, just basically saying, this is how I did it, right? I what? Have an introduction. Yeah. 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 But what I mean is, it's, it was all about me being a vehicle and being a servant to that um, subject, and then suddenly the world puts the spotlight, spotlight on you. On you. And, yeah. and you think, no, why are you looking at me? Look at it. <laughs> and so that was a big disappointment. Ah. Well, we live in a society of celebrities. We can't. <laughs> in the old days, you never put your name on work, did you? I need a pseudonym, so, I think. Eh? No, I, I need a pseudonym. I'm seriously considering one. I make That'd be easy. Anyway, sorry, that was unnecessary. Footnote. No, that's all right. Footnote. <laughs> does, that, uh, does that make sense of it? In the introductory talk, you used the words abiding in the present moment. It occurred to me that this doesn't have the emotional punch of <laughs> the Christian hymn, Abide With Me. Uh, how will Theravada ever make up the levels of emotional support that Christianity seems to offer? 
<clears throat> yeah, that reminds me of um, someone who used was. Uh, well, she's. I mean, she would define herself. I think, or she would say of herself that she's a Buddhist, and she's a, a good meditator. And she goes to uh, Amravati, and but it was just too dry. She had to go along to the Christian church to get a bit of <laughs> emotional oomph. You know I, mean? um, I think uh, there's a deficit in the way that uh, Buddhism comes to the West and in the way it's taught. And when you go to the East, you see that there's no deficit on the emotional side. And it's to do with the way that um, why we come to the practice. We come to the practice really to sort out, a lot of us, to sort out our problems, to understand the world, etc., etc. And unwittingly, we're not, we're not juicing it up with, with religious emotions. And um, that was one of the things about the carol service, you see, to try and see these emotional um, supports. And um, as, as you point out, Christianity is excellent at doing that. And the music is, is so moving. Uh, when my father died, um, I was in Sri Lanka at the time, and on hearing the news, um, I cried a little bit. But by the time I got back to my kuti, uh, all that had gone because um, I had a very good relationship with him and he lived a good life and I, I really was quite happy, you know. And he died very quickly. There was no lingering, you know. So I was, I was fairly, uh, fairly okay with it all, you know. And uh, I was with my mother in the church ceremony and there's this hymn, oh, I can't quite remember it, but it's it's the love of Jesus. I can't bring it to mind, but as soon as it started, the tears are flowing down my face. <laughs> it's just a, it really cranked it up, and just a, astonishing. So, music, as you know, has this tremendous power to you know, raise, and there's there's not much of it in Theravada Buddhism. You know, <laughs> the chanting. Now, an interesting, another little interesting aside is that there was a a um, an Oxford, um, sorry, um, um, an Orthodox, an Orthodox uh, monk in uh, London. This is years and years ago, who uh, led a choir, and he said it was so difficult to stop the choir singing emotionally. Right? And if you listen to plain chant. Um, it's not emotional in the sense that, right, it comes out of silence, you see, it comes out of silence. And in my humble opinion, ever since plain chant, there's been nothing but corruption. <laughs> so, um, if you consider uh, what are the emotional, what are spiritual emotions, and they're actually serviced in Telavada if you want to do the exercises. So the first one is, is a sense of gratitude. And by uh, just going through the Buddha's life and what he went through and what we've received from it, then every time you look at a Buddha statue, you, you just get this enormous gratitude. And that comes easy to Easterners. Okay? There's a sense of awe. See, a sense of, you know, when you realise what he achieved and you realise the, the uh, ineffability, really, of the Dharma, the whole thing, you know, like why we're here. All that is never really explained. You know, how, how is it we're here in the first place? You know, like, and where does this 
Buddha nature, where's it arisen from? Where's it you know, like there's a whole load of of metaphysics which is just completely dark and he never went into it because from his point of view it would just be inference. All we can know is what's within this bubble of awareness that we have. See? And then there's praise, you see, and that's where you get the, the joy, the wonderful joy. Now if anybody goes to say one of the main shrines in Sri Lanka or anywhere really, but the one I'm thinking of in Sri Lanka there. And you go along on a puja day, which is the full moon day of a month. That's the main one. I mean, you can slice the emotions like butter. You know? And you can see people are completely, they're just up in that seventh heaven of emotional bliss. Okay. So, in a sense, that's something that... Um, uh, perhaps comes is in, instilled in you as a child you know and that as you move into adulthood and you haven't got that which a lot of young people now don't have I mean they've got all the music stuff but they don't have these subtle religious emotions uh, in my own case I didn't really get into the emotional side the um, of, of Buddhism until quite late I would have been already 15 years or so practicing and then slowly I began to uh, see that there was a I hadn't developed a heart relationship to the religion I had uh, chosen and as that came along then I realized you know that's what I've got to do and that's why I've got all these statues and Kuan Yin and, and a stupa because the stupa is a, is really a, is really a, um, a tombstone that's what it is. It's, it's their representative of, of the Buddha's life, uh, and that's why I, I, I you know, I, I try to pump that, but not too much avail, I'm afraid, because <laughs> <laughs> most people who come to the meditation really just want to sort themselves out. And I think that that emotional value, uh, the feeling of uh, a heart connection with uh, a religion within, uh, grows in time. See, and having said that, uh, I, you know, brought up a Catholic, I walk into a Catholic church, I'm in Seventh Heaven. I'm just back there, it's just beautiful, you know, just the feel of it. I went to a, um, uh, I think it would be a Tibetan Buddhist service with a friend of mine in, in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah, but they, they were doing singing, they were using uh, translated Tibetan texts, but to very westernized ah, melodies. Right. And that struck me as, as so artificial. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a pleasing, for me it was not a pleasing solution to the... Uh, no sense of profundity. Remember, yeah, it, yeah, it didn't have the... Uh, the profundity of the chant. Yeah, yeah. Or even the profundity of, of the Western traditional... Yeah. Uh, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, I think Amrawati have done a decent job. If you listen to their chant, they, they still, they chant in the Pali and then in the English. And it's still a chant. And I think they... They do it nicely. People ask me, you know, why don't I do it here? But that takes, um, that takes, I need to know a musician and I need to, I mean, I'm happy with the Pali. Well, I think it's lovely. I was, I thought the chant this morning, I really enjoyed it. it just... That's right, you know, it just has a, you know. Mm. It's a Burmese, Burmese type chant. About, so for about 10 days after I left the retreat back in the summer, every night it kept ringing in my ears 
and it turned into a law line at some conscious level. And it was incredibly soothing yeah. and comforting. And, and I didn't recall it, it just it was there, ringing yeah, totally. as part of the sound in the background. So I, I, I do think that that's part of the of the process. At some point, there has to be uh, I don't know about an emotional punch, but <laughs> some some heart connection. Uh, it becomes very dry. Um, the other way people do it is through the practice of metta, of course. That's another way. For some reason, it's, it's making me think. I can't remember who she is—a contemporary Christian mystic. Just read a quote from her sometime this year where she was saying, she says, yes, her own path is difficult, but she has a hard time imagining the, the faith required to have faith in the present moment, if you will, like, like, like the Buddhists do, you know, rather than faith in, uh, in something in the of Christ. Yeah. 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 But I think that's in part why why religious Buddhism as you're saying in Southeast Asia still does focus very much on the person the person of the Buddha that is the person the, of the, the Buddha the connection yeah definitely definitely it is very a very personal connection um, and we're not very good in the West when it comes to complete devotion um, I am remembering the um, documentary by Herzog how much um, was that? Um, I will send you the link. Um, can't remember the name of it. No, it is a pilgrimage to um, the biggest Dalai Lama gathering. Oh, the Kala Chakra. Hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, that's right. Um, oh, that's right. No, I saw that. Some people, it took them three and a half years. That's right. To not walk. Yes. But to kiss. Yeah, um, the, bowing, the bowing all the way, and, and they're all damaging their <laughs> yes. and, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and so they have measured the earth yeah. with their body. Yeah. That's the kind of devotion yeah. Yeah. and commitment. And in the West, well, remember that that's also to do with karma. And, okay. You know, either either doing good karma to undermine bad karma, or creating good karma per se. But you're right, it, it is driven by this incredible devotion. Yeah, it's lovely when you see it. it um, I suppose the, the unfortunate thing with the devotion approach is it, it, it moves rather easily into superstition. That's your problem with it. It has to be a balance. Uh, the Buddha himself didn't like himself to be the object of um, adoration. Right there on his deathbed, while he was dying, there's a young monk who looks at him with, you know, those glistening eyes and oh, my, my, you know, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, you know, he sends him off, sends him off into the forest. <laughs> you know, I don't want that, thank you very much. So he's not, he wasn't personally into, and of course he didn't leave himself, he left the Dharma, he was very clear about that. And, and as you know, for a very long time, he wasn't represented physically it's always symbolic you know the Greeks that undermined all that and uh, and I think later on too 
because of the very devotional aspect of Hinduism. And remember that Buddhism and Hinduism fenced each other for what, 1,500 years, I think, in India. So then there was this apparition of further Buddhas, uh, you know, all the all the Buddhas of the Mahayana, which were really aspects of the Buddha turned into a Buddha. So there's a Buddha of compassion, the Buddha of healing, things like that. I think that was all part of uh, trying to contact the ordinary person, not the person who was an intellectual or anything like that. That was one of the uh, one of the criticisms of early Buddhism, which began the split somewhere around about I think as early as three hundred years after the Buddha's death. Um, that it had become far too, you know, the Arahat idea that you were just in it for yourself and you expected people to support you and, and you lived in your monastery like at Nalanda, thousands of them. And the, the disconnect with people, and I think that when they realised that they were losing ordinary people to a more emotional, devotional, sorry, devotional uh, uh, religion, that's when they started coming up with these things. Now, interestingly enough, in the history of Sri Lanka, when it was when there was an attempt by a, 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 a certain person to convert Sri Lanka to the Mahayana, he wrote a, a particular discourse, which is called "Going to Sri Lanka," Lanka Vatara Sutta. Um, the monks from uh, Amarapur, uh, the monks from what's the, what's the what's the main city there that we went to see? The main city. Yeah, the main, the old main city. What they No, 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 no. The the old one. Anuradhapura. Thank you, Anuradhapura. Uh, the Theravada sects. There were two big monasteries there, uh, which created two different They left the capital and went south, and they told the king, his his close uh, advisor, said to the king, "Look, if you don't watch it, you're going to have a civil war in your hands, because the society was now split between all those who wanted." the Mahayana, there were Mahayana monks and Mahayana temples, the Mahayana sculptures are there, and these Theravadans, you see. So he decided on Theravada and he kicked all the monks out from the monasteries, all the Mahayana monks. But the practices of Mahayana, this devotion to the Buddha, offering flowers, all that sort of stuff, was all taken into Theravada. That's where, that's where they think all the devotional practices of Theravada came from. Which century was that in? Uh, in my head, it's um, it's quite late because yeah, maybe three or four or five centuries on. There's an article written by on it in the Middle Way. If you're interested, and I think uh, either the last one. I think it was the last one we got. It surprised me actually. I did. Mm. Interesting. So it still had an effect on Theravada Buddhism in Sri Lanka. And I think throughout, then throughout uh, Burma and Thailand and all that, because you get lots of devotion, devotional practices there. Uh, just as a final thing, I was in Sri Lanka and I came across a group of women who were living as a community, dressed in white, and in other words on eight precepts, and they bunched their hair up into a bun, all of them. And they had a, a teacher guiding them. And... Um, in the shrine room, they had the Buddha statue, but every day they had a chair, and every day they, they offered slippers to the chair, to the Buddha. 
and water and had his pot of tea and all that. They sort of set him up for the day. <laughs> Incredibly sweet. I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before. Well, they were very, very uh, committed. My goodness. Very good. Yeah.